0: spring break chaos erupts again on miami beach the state legislature looks set for an unprecedented crackdown on illegal immigration and haiti looks set to break under gang rule this is the south florida roundup i'm your host tim Paget. in the next hour we'll look at why miami beach is still a magnet for march madness not basketball but spring break violence does the other spring break destination up the road fort lauderdale have any advice to give We'll also look at a bill moving through Tallahassee to dole out harsh punishment for undocumented immigrants in Florida. And finally, President Biden is in Canada to discuss what, if anything, could be done to save Haiti from its powerful gangs. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. It's happened again during spring break. On Miami Beach, as Miami's hottest party spot saw thousands of visitors hit its streets last weekend, two deadly shootings occurred on iconic Ocean Drive. One last Friday night, another early Sunday morning. The violence thrust South Beach into a national media glare that feels like deja vu. And it's got Miami Beach officials groping for what? besides curfews and alcohol restrictions, can be done to control the raucous crowds that descend on the city every March. But cross the county line to Fort Lauderdale and it seems things are comparatively calm on its famous spring break streets and beaches, even orderly. So is Fort Lauderdale doing something right these days that Miami Beach could perhaps learn from? What does spring break look like on your side of town? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN.org. Joining me to discuss Miami Beach's struggle for spring break peace are its vice mayor, Steve Miner, and Glendon Hall, chair of the Miami Beach Black Affairs Advisory Council. Gentlemen, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you. Thank you vice mayor minor i want to start with you according to miami beach's own research the the largest spring break crowds were expected last weekend and the volume of spring breakers should probably drop off starting this weekend so are are you anticipating less potential for violent incidents through the rest of the spring break season
1: well, Tim, and thanks for having me and great to be on with you, Glenn. Yeah, I mean, last weekend was the historically the worst weekend, but I'm still concerned about this coming weekend. I had actually voted in favor of supporting right. um, a midnight curfew for, for this coming weekend. Our commission did not support that. And uh, we'll see what happens.
0: But is an added concern, for example, the fact that uh, you've also got Miami Music Week and the Ultra Festival coming this <laughs> this weekend and this coming week?
1: Well, spring break, there's so much going on, the amount of crowds that just coming into our city, which by the way, mostly enjoying our city, having a great time, it just takes a couple of incidences, but unfortunately they're, they're violent and they left two people dead on our streets which is why we need to uh, we need to make changes going forward. And I have some proposals, as, as do some of my colleagues. Next year is going to look much different in Miami Beach.
0: Well, as, as you mentioned, you and Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gilbert voted this week with one city commissioner to reimpose a midnight curfew that was put in place after the shootings last weekend. But four other city commissioners voted against keeping the curfew, although the commission did approve a ban on alcohol sales after 6 p.m. Do you worry that lifting the curfew just potentially invites more of the same of what we saw last weekend?
1: Well, last year we had the same situation. Third week of spring break, we had a number of violent incidences. And then we implemented the the midnight curfew for the fourth week. And we and the crowds actually dissipated. We did not have the same level. We didn't have really any incidences. I just don't think it was worth the chance. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll we'll have a great weekend and people are going to come and enjoy our city. I just don't think it was worth the chance. By the way, some businesses obviously did not want the curfew, understandably. But many, many businesses did want the curfew, actually. And our residents literally almost uniformly wanted the curfew. To, to really just make sure everything is safe for this weekend.
0: Right, and we should note that there is stepped-up police presence in Miami Beach's Entertainment District, that bustling area of South Beach from 5th to 15th Streets, especially along iconic Ocean Drive, and police did quickly arrest the shooters last week. But I guess the question now is, is there any amount of law enforcement that can prevent the unruliness when you've got so many thousands of partying people converging on such a relatively small area?
1: Well, Tim, you hit on it. It's just the volume of crowds. The police the police presence has been outstanding. We also have police from, from Miami-Dade County, from, from, uh, from, from Coral Gables. We have so many police officers. And like you say, our police have been great. They've been keeping, maintaining order, and they also caught the individuals literally almost immediately. But I think it's just the volume of crowds and the illegal weapons that are on the street. That's why I'm proposing, and actually at Monday's commission meeting, I am going to introduce a resolution for next year, secured perimeters, metal detectors. We just cannot have the amount of illegal weapons on our streets uh, that that's creating this dangerous situation that we're seeing year after year.
0: But, you know, Miami Beach has been an iconic spring break destination for decades. What has changed in recent years? What has gone wrong in your estimation?
1: There's so many, so many variables to it. It's, It's really hard to pinpoint one one specific item. But it's just, you know, it used to be if some people had a disagreement, they might they might punch each other. And then, uh, you know, maybe the police would break it up and you move on. But obviously, when you're dealing with with the guns on the street, illegal weapons on the street, unfortunately, that fight turns into a deadly altercation. And that's just it. We've seen it too many years in a row now. And that's why we just we have to put an end to it. This cannot continue. We cannot be having the same conversation next year.
0: Right. And the, the uh, you know, carry the, the you know, the the uh, the kind of gun carrying legislation that's being considered now in Tallahassee. How much would that make your your efforts to change the situation in spring break in Miami Beach even tougher?
1: I don't think it will impact it because what we're talking about, the Ultra Music Festival has uh, very heavy security. Tortuga Music Festival in Fort Lauderdale has very heavy security with wanding metal detectors there's nothing there's no reason we can't do the same thing we'll have a right. nice event ticketed admission we'll have a secured perimeter people come in just to make sure everyone is is safe and they can enjoy the uh,
0: enjoy the show but it sounds then you know like as though the real solution is is not so much short term fixes like curfews or increased police presence but maybe a more long term answer like changing the very nature and culture of South Beach, so that it's not such a magnet for spring break chaos. And if so, how do you do that without compromising your community's tourism-based economy? Well,
1: that's been a debate on our commission. We're having these uh, literally almost uh, last our last commission meeting whether to close the, the bars and sale of alcohol at two a.m. or five a.m. This is a constant conversation that we're we're having. But those are long-term. Those are long-term fixes, and we also have to focus on that but also the short-term fix, how to keep people safe.
0: Miami Beach Vice Mayor Steve Miner, thanks very much for your perspective, sir. Appreciate it.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks, Tim.
0: I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the Miami Beach spring break crisis. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN.org. I want to bring in now Glendon Hall. He's chair of the non-governmental Miami Beach Black Affairs Advisory Council. Um, Mr. Hall, I, I want to put that same question to you that I just put to the vice mayor. How can or should Miami Beach, South Beach in particular, change its identity, let's say, in a way that discourages the unruly excesses it's dealing with, while at the same time remaining a prosperous tourism hub?
2: Well, you have, um, thanks for m- bringing me on, you have short-term and long-term uh, policies that can be put in place, as was, was mentioned. I think we have to cut down on the party in the street, the cheap party in the street kind of mentality, which is basically supported by some outlets such as, you know, different streets that have the smoke shops, the pizza by the slice, and the liquor stores. That basically supports and fuels the party in the street the cheap part in the street. I mean, these, these are folks that are not, you know, spring breakers, they're lawbreakers, right? Some of these, the, the, and the folks who are part of that,
0: good who of don't it. go
2: to the hotels, that don't, um, you know, participate in, in the restaurants and the bars, et cetera. They have a party in the street. They party out there, the trunks of their cars, they buy the liquor and have it in their bags, which the liquor stores say if you have it in their bags, that it's not an issue, which is, it is a big issue, the glass and everything else. So we have to take away that fuel, which is a long-term process where, you know, you, you change the zoning right. to more of scale, which is you, the same thing that happened in Fort Lauderdale.
0: You've been an advocate of significantly rezoning South Beach in a way that might eliminate businesses that draw some of that excess we're talking about, right?
2: Yes, because, I mean, I used to be one of the partyers of spring break. I used to be in Fort Lauderdale when they had pin rods and the button, our stocks, playpen, and things like that. And so the issue was the neighbors got so sad and disgusted with all the deaths and overdoses that they, the neighborhood just got to the point where we got to focus on our quality of life,
0: right?
2: And so you know what, we have to change this. And so the city started investing in the infrastructure, in a a you know the 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 design, the 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 new wall, everything else. And when they they made they showed that message to the businesses that were willing to invest in the area, yeah. and so the businesses followed suit and upgraded that.
0: But there are also fears that if Miami Beach goes too far in that direction, you risk diminishing the entertainment district or even seeing it disappear. Plus, it it might promote a sort of gentrification of the area that might box out or discriminate against groups like minorities. Is that a valid concern as well?
2: Well, let me bring this up. As a, as a black resident, I mean, when the issues occurred in Fort Lauderdale, you have to realize from back in the day from the, the movie Where the Boys Are, those are mostly white college students. So it wasn't a race thing. Then it was a matter of upgrading the status and the actual quality of people coming to the area, right? Back then, you had the really ratty, nasty, uh, you know, torn down, unkempt hotels that basically bred drugs, prostitution, and everything else. And that was all cleaned up. So it's not an issue of race, per se. It's the possibility of the quality of people. You know, we have the American Black Film Festival. Which comes here, which is which has been supported finally by the city of uh, Miami Beach as part of their their whole you know package of of yeah. institutional uh, events for the city, like Art bass and South Beach Food and Wine, that brought, draws still a black clientele, mm-hmm. right? But it's a better quality, so Dude. we're not just having people just coming down here, whether it be white, black, otherwise, who just love to party in the street mm-hmm. and don't support the clubs and the restaurants that now, are on, on Miami Beach.
0: Now, you mentioned Fort Lauderdale. Do, do resident groups like yours feel there are any lessons to be learned just north of us uh, in Fort Lauderdale? When I was a college student way back in the 1980s, it had a similar wild spring break reputation, as you've mentioned. In fact, we used to call it Fort Lickerdale, and it was famous mm-hmm. for things like wet t-shirt contests. But Since then, Fort Lauderdale apparently has stopped marketing itself that way and only recently started welcoming the spring break throngs back. Now it has massive police presence up there for spring break with things like metal detector checks, like the vice mayor was just mentioning before you hit the beach. Should Miami Beach be paying attention?
2: Well, I think that there are some things that we wanted to institute this this year, and we have to realize that there's no civil bullet to this, right? Yeah. There's multiple ways and different a- avenues for which to do this. One thing that we cannot do is back some of the zero tolerance policing uh, rhetoric that's pop- popping up again. I'm absolutely vehemently against that. Mm-hmm. Zero tolerance policing does not work as as Freddie Ramirez from Miami, um, Miami Day PD. It does not work. All it does is increase issues between uh, black and brown visitors and residents of Miami Beach. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And we have to give credit to uh, Miami Beach PD and the Goodwill ambassadors—they've done a fantastic job. You notice there's been no issues of dealing with excessive force. You have no press conferences with, you know, the ACLU, with the the Miami Dade um, uh, Black Affairs Advisor, even my place, Circle of, Circle of Brother. You don't you yeah. don't have that because these excessive uh, force issues have been remedied through the leadership of Chief Clements, right? We don't want the same thing that happens at the Royal Palm where you had five police officers arrested and one just got convicted uh, last week because of the use of excessive force unnecessarily. The the Miami Beach PD have shown tremendous restraint. As mm -hmm. you saw, they caught the people within minutes, right? Right. And they took them down and and, and took them out of the the situation and kept the place peaceful and that we should give them as much credit as possible.
0: No, well, thank you, thank you very much for bringing up that, that positive note, I think that is important. Now, And we should also mention that even Fort Lauderdale, though, has experienced some controversy. Just this, this week, Def Leopard drummer Rick Allen was was apparently attacked by a 19-year-old spring breaker. So they, they've got some of their own problems, unfortunately. But finally yes. here, Mr. Hall, p- perhaps the most important question is, what do Miami Beach residents themselves say about all this? What do they worry? their community is becoming and what do they want done about it? And, and, and also, perhaps we should ask, what do they feel all this says, not just about Miami Beach, but about how American society at large has changed for the worse?
2: Well, I think the main thing is quality of life and safety. That's what the main thing that we want in our city. Quality of life and safety. Right. You brought up a good point. This permitless uh, you know, policy that the governor wants to put forth is insane. This will pour
0: when gasoline. it comes when it comes to carrying guns.
2: Right. Right. And I'm a permit. I mean, I'm a I'm a concealed weapon permit owner. I'm a hunter. I get it. I'm a gun owner. Right. I want people to go through a process background checks, et cetera, and training. So I'm 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 a I'm a gun owner. I'm not some yellow belly pacifist here. I get it. But you have to have that kind of control because if not, the the, the issues, the significant issues that Miami Beach PD has and other, uh, you know, officers of the will only increase Miami Beach PD is already doing a fantastic job, right? Through them and the Goodwill Ambassadors, keeping arrests down. Arrests have been down this year. And also, there's been no excessive force issues. But having permitless carry would pour gasoline on a fire and make it even worse for them to do their job.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Vice Mayor uh, Minor, you're still with us on the line. And I want to put that question to yes. you as well. Um, what, what, what? Especially the last question. What do you feel that this 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 crisis says not just about Miami Beach, but about how American society at large has perhaps changed for the worse in in, in terms of what American society is sort of dumping on Miami Beach every every spring break? You know, whether it be social media driven, et et cetera. Well,
1: certainly it's not something that I relish in seeing the national and international image that we get, because we are a safe city. Not that we don't have issues during the rest of the year, but we are a safe city. And this just really ruins it, uh, I think, for all of us. And I think we need to be really careful that if we don't get this under control, that long term, it could cause some economic damage to us, not just the businesses, but also residents who say, I had enough of this. We really need to be careful that we don't we don't let this uh, pester, and that's why I think next year I- I'm really confident that we are going to take some serious steps. Um, obviously, the secured perimeters is, is is an absolute must in the right direction, and we're going to end this.
0: Well, thank you very and, and much. But- also, sure, sure,
2: sure. Go ahead. Also, this we have to have uh, m- multiple jurisdictions and 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 groups to help us. Also, this year we're supposed to have. The, the loop, as we call the traffic loop, that we typically put in for Memorial Day weekend that really helped the issues that we had for Memorial Day weekend with programming, et cetera. That loop needed to be instituted on three, on not only on 395, but on the dual total. We've had issues with FDOT allowing us to do that, to have the LPRs on that side and then the, and then the exit on 395. So if, it's a capacity issue, not only on a gun issue. When You should treat that area like it's a stadium. Once it hits capacity, you can't let it get anybody else on. We can't shut down the the causeway. But what we can do, we can have it cut down to the point where you have the LPRs, the license plate readers, pulling over cars with issues and allowing residents to come on. And then you have the loop. You have it where you block off all of the entranceways into the neighborhoods. And you shut down the garages so there's no parking. So if you get on, you have to come immediately off. And we couldn't do that this year because of issues that I understand were FDOT. That needs to be part of the solution going forward, that you control the capacity of people coming on the beach, right? right. And then and also have security measures.
0: That, that brings me to one last question I want to put to both of you. Um, there was a, a moment there when Ocean Drive was was being used as a pedestrian walkway and cars were not allowed on. Should that be brought back uh, to, to to maybe bring a little bit more control and calm uh, to that that zone? Vice Mayor Miner, should we make Ocean Drive a pedestrian walkway again? That's been
1: a bit that's been a big debate. Are you talking about spring break or just generally?
0: I'm talking about generally.
1: Well, it's been a big debate, right? You know, we've tried also having one way, and we actually have created more pedestrian friendly areas. We created a nice bike lane. So, and only having cars going one way. And I think that's actually worked uh pretty, pretty, pretty well. There's so many issues when you close it down completely to vehicles, including how do people access the hotels. When they're coming in from uh, from an Uber or what have you. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of different areas, issues that we need to consider. But ultimately, what what creates some of the problems that I think you're 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 alluding to is that when you have it only pedestrian, especially during spring break, there's just a volume of people right. that it's very hard to control the crowd. And that's something we, and I think Glenn actually summarized it fairly well, and I think we need to do a better job of limiting the amount of people that 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 come into the city because it becomes overwhelming for our police force that mm-hmm. that are out there in, in tremendous numbers, but yet it's very difficult to control the amount of people that we had right. on the spring break. Mr.
0: Hall, do you agree uh, that, that, that perhaps making it a pedestrian walkway would simply exacerbate the problem that we see at spring break each year?
2: Well, everybody knows that ground zero is always eighth and Ocean. That's right. always ground zero where the crowds come right. and everything else. So, uh, if you have the perimeter secure, you can't have cars coming through. So that's the balance that has to be, you know, provided. I think mm-hmm. having it as this present configuration where you have cars going through in the lanes, I think, has been successful in my opinion because I go down there quite often. Okay. Um, but if you're going to have security for the the perimeter during that that particular weekend, you can't have cars going through. So it's going to be, you know, an area. But at least if you have it where it's secure and everybody feels safe within that particular area, I think it will work. I'm optimistic.
0: Steve Miner is vice mayor of Miami Beach. Glendon Hall chairs the Miami Beach Black Affairs Advisory Council. Thank you, gentlemen, both of you, for being with us today. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you, sir. Still to come, a new immigration bill moving through the state legislature promises to crack down hard on undocumented migrants in Florida and those who help them. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Those who were activists from the nonprofit Florida Immigrant Coalition yesterday protesting outside the Miami office of State Senator Ileana Garcia. She's one of the Republicans here who supports an anti-illegal immigration bill that looks likely to pass the Florida legislature. SB 1718 proposes harsh punishments not just for undocumented migrants who are here in the state, but for anyone who hires or helps them. That could have a dramatic effect on South Florida economically, in, agri- in agriculture, in tourism, and socially, in hospitals, in universities. Immigrant advocates say just giving a ride to someone who is not in the U.S. legally could land you in hot water. Florida District 11 Senator Blaise Ingolia introduced the bill, which Governor Ron DeSantis supports. Ingolia told the Senate Rules Committee he wants to get the federal government to do something about illegal immigration and the crisis on the U.S.'s southern border.
2: That is my hope that this becomes sort of a piece of legislation that other states can mimic, specifically Texas. Because if we can get Florida and Texas to pass comprehensive state led anti illegal immigration reform in the states, if we have Florida and Texas, the second and third largest states in the union, the federal government will react.
0: Do you agree or disagree that states like Florida should get involved in the federal government's immigration role? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN.org. Joining us to discuss the immigration bill and its components is Tessa Petit. She's co-executive director of the Florida Immigrant Coalition, and I want to note that we reached out to State Senator Ileana Garcia for this program, but she could not join us. We also reached out to Republican State Senator Ana Maria Rodriguez of Miami who also supports the bill, but she did not get back to us. Tessa, welcome to the State Florida, excuse me, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Uh, thank you, Tim. Tessa, why are groups like the Florida Immigrant Coalition so adamantly opposed to this immigration bill?
3: Well, you said it very eloquently at the at the in your introduction. It's because this bill will impact everyone in the state of Florida. As we look at it, people tend to think that it's only going to impact immigrants, but it goes further. Right. This is a bill that has multiple components, and some of them you mentioned and some of them not. When we take the harboring and transporting um, undocumented immigrants, what the bill actually states is that anyone who has in their car or in their home or in their place of worship, someone who has not yet completed their process or who has an irregular immigration status, that person can get a third degree felony and be required to remain in detention until they see a judge right And it can go all the way to a second degree felony and 15 years of imprisonment
0: right And that's probably she- one of the most controversial points in the bill and you know it, it, it says that if it criminalizes essentially quote knowingly and willingly transporting an undocumented immigrant into or within the state. And a lot of people are I mean in fact, I think the bill essentially itself says says that it equates that with, quote, human smuggling. Uh, What do you fear the implications of that will be?
3: The implications will be, as you mentioned, socially, right? It's we have a lot of documented folks who have parents, relatives who are still undocumented, and it's going to be it puts at stake their relationship with their family members it puts at stake their it, it's putting people in a position where you have to choose between going in detention or being around a loved one statistics have shown that numbers show that 770 722 000 u.s citizens in the state of florida reside with someone with an irregular irregular immigration status yeah. so this is going to put a strain on our judicial system this is going to cost the state a fortune but more than likely it is and the worst part is that it is going to put an emotional and social strain on our community and divide us when you take the miami-dade county for example school board who's registered 17,000 immigrant students from the end of last year to the beginning of 2023 most of these students being immigrants from cuba uh, this is also. Are we telling our children that when they want to make a friend with the child sitting next to them, they need to ask them about their immigration status? Otherwise, they will mm-hmm. not be able to happen in their home right. for their birthday
0: party. Now, the bill would. The bill would require some hospitals to collect information on patients' immigration status when they're being admitted. The bill states they would not share that private information, but just provide numbers and the medical costs for the state. Still, what danger do you see here in that provision?
3: Well, the danger in that provision is that, one, it is going to to exacerbate the sense of fear that immigrants already have living in the state of Florida. We have on our staff um, a young lady who is a US citizen. However, her father being undocumented, hesitated to seek uh, healthcare and ended up, by the time it was too late, ended up dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. So this is the type of things that we're going to see. Children are not gonna access uh, care. Parents are not gonna access care. And uh, that level of fear and that level of division in our communities is just going to exacerbate the, the the tensions that all the other bills are already putting on us in the state yeah. when they are pointing the fingers at LGBTQ communities, when they are attacking uh, women's reproductive rights, it's just going to increase the fear. Yeah of being in the state altogether. The, bi-
0: the bill also makes it a third degree felony for an undocumented immigrant to use false ID, but perhaps more significant is that it prohibits those migrants from having driver's license. Now that that that's quite a departure from what the Republican Party in Florida used to support. Former Governor Jeb Bush advocated undocumented immigrants having driver's licenses, right? Yes,
3: he did, and right now it's Right now, what we've been doing is uh, providing in a lot of counties community IDs to undocumented immigrants. And this bill prohibits community IDs and it prohibits any municipalities from funding those community IDs. Now, currently, Broward County, Miami-Dade County, um, the city of Gainesville. And, uh, you know, these are counties, municipalities that support community IDs because it makes it easier for law enforcement and it makes it easier also for these immigrants to access different uh, services or even health care or even public transportation right. in the state of Florida. Right. And, and so, this is an, an unfair attack on on their liberties.
0: Right. And so the assumption would be that this bill would essentially bring those programs of providing acceptable community IDs to people like undocumented immigrants that would bring that program more or less to a complete halt.
3: Yes, because it also invalidates the community IDs that have already been issued to those community members.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the new immigration bill in the Florida State Legislature. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN.org. Tessa, there's also a fear that the bill will ultimately include barring even, quote, dreamers or undocumented immigrants who were brought here as young children from receiving the in-state tuition benefit at public universities in Florida. Again, that seems a real GOP reversal here when you consider former Governor Rick Scott supported that benefit.
3: Well, uh, let me uh let me be more precise. So that was listed in the proposal issued by Governor DeSantis back in February. But as the bill came out in March 7th of 2023, right. in-state tuition is not included in it.
0: Right. There, but now, there, there was a f- there was, was a fear, though, that a re- that. new re- there was a fear, though, that a new reading of the bill might re-include it this week. And so there's it's sort of still a cloud. Um, but but yeah. but you you're you're confident then that that will not be included in the in the final bill.
3: At this point, I cannot be confident about anything right. um, about the bills that are currently coming out of Tallahassee. We uh, a lot of them seem to be to be just, you know, purposely attacking immigrant communities, regardless of the actual impact it has long term on the state of Florida not considering that giving access to in-state tuition to mm-hmm. DACA and, uh, and DREAMers actually is in the best interest of the state because we're getting more professional. We're giving access to education to more, to the future of the state. Right. And so it really does not make sense as to why uh, figure out another way to hinder access to education mm-hmm. to low-income minorities and immigrant communities.
0: Now you, you were talking about the impact that this has on the state, and 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 let let's go to the economic impact. Then the bill requires Florida employers to use what's known as e verification to confirm that anyone it hires is in the U.S. legally. Now this is this is not a new notion. This is this has been discussed and 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 bandied about for years now in Florida, particularly under uh, Governor Ron DeSantis's um, administration how do you see that affecting the florida economy
3: well we have to be realistic right the food we eat depends a lot on farm workers who are may have come here with a uh, a temporary agricultural visa but stick around and continue working either because their employers refuse to pay the, the fee to renew their visas but at the end of the day whether it is in the world of agriculture or even services. And even when it comes to those who care for our loved ones or in our aging uh, family members, these, this bill is just going to prevent more folks from working and we already know that we have a labor shortage mm-hmm. in the state of Florida. Right. so It's going to automatically, with a labor shortage, continue increasing the cost of living in the state. Mm-hmm. So currently, the E-Verify exists. Um, but it is there are certain options to opt out. It right. is a strong bill that currently exists. And I think that uh we hope that the current legislature will take a second look at it. And mm. you know, like in the past, we've seen uh, big businesses help water down the e verify. Right. We hope that They'll be able to again yeah. put some sense in the head of it. That's
0: that's a good point. Business business here in Florida has never really been too fond of e verify. We yeah. have Dan from Boynton Beach on the line. Um, Dan, you you uh, you're asking how can states control ports of entry uh, in in this in this uh, issue? Please go ahead.
1: Yes, um, my my biggest concern is that majority of people maybe overstay their visa, overstay their. Um, you know, they're staying in, in, in the United States through ports of entry, and, and, and that is the uh, main mode of, of how they get into the states. And I guess my question is, how are the states going to control that if that's a federally um, you know, controlled program? I, I just don't yeah. get that, and I can take my uh, answer you No, know, no, we're, we're,
0: we're going to get into that, Dan. It's an excellent question. It really goes to the heart of the discussion. Uh, but, but Tessa, let's, let's go back to what we heard Senator Ingolius say at the outset here, there is an immigration and border crisis out there, and, and the federal government has lost control of it, according to their argument. Even the Democratic Biden administration acknowledges the crisis. So can you really blame states like Florida and Texas for proposing laws like this? Tessa? I
3: think that the, the, the laws that are being proposed, which are targeting folks that have been in this country for a long time, are not going to be the solution to the border concerns that that exist now, and we have seen certain certain policies that the current Biden that the Biden administration is trying to pass to have some control, some level of control on uh of the borders. But these policies that are being passed are not the ones that are going to solve the current issues that we're facing at the borders. These current policies actually just focus on targeting folks who are already here. Let's keep in mind that we've known for the longest that there's about between 10 and 11 million undocumented immigrants living in this in this country, mm-hmm. and that over 70% of Americans believe in regularizing the process for these folks and their right. immigration status. Right. But the way these policies are written, they're just going to exacerbate the fear in our communities without really providing a solution to the issues that are happening. Mm-hmm. And the folks who are right. ending up in the state of Florida, most of them, they go to a port of entry and they've been inspected. So those policies are really not going to impact those who have mm-hmm. been right. inspected at some point, which is the largest number of what we call new arrivals that we have in the state of Florida. Now,
0: now finally, and, and this goes to uh, back to uh, what Dan was calling about from Boynton Beach. I want to ask if you think this bill, if it becomes law, will even hold up in court. I mean, one of its key provisions is that it lets state law enforcement take part in immigration enforcement, which is exclusively the federal government's role. A a decade ago, the U.S. Supreme Court said that violates the Tenth Amendment's supremacy clause. So does this measure really have any chance of surviving after it's enacted?
3: Um, I can't really answer that I'm not sure where that is going to what we're going to be able to litigate in court however there is one thing we know that there are other policies that also deputize local law enforcement to support uh federal federal uh sorry federal agencies mm-hmm. such as the 287 Gs which in the bill passed last year the SB 1808 made it mandatory for every county in the state of Florida to have 287Gs right. and therefore deputize their law enforcement. So we understand that um, this bill would just reinforce this process. Mm-hmm. And But the biggest concern, and this was even brought up by the UN back last year, is that the 287Gs actually have proven to increase uh, racial profiling. And there is one part of this bill that was not brought up is the fact that it also invalidates driver's license legally issued by other states. Other states, right. by that right. driver's license to undocumented. Right. How right. are we going to identify mm-hmm. folks who possibly may have a driver's license from another state? Right. Or how are we going to identify folks who possibly may be carrying someone who's undocumented in their vehicle, that will lead to racial profiling, and that's our biggest concern.
0: Well, thank you for bringing that up, uh, and uh, we'll have to leave it there. Tessa Petit is the executive director of the Florida Immigrant Coalition. Tessa, thanks.
3: Thank you, Tim.
0: And we should remind people that Senate Bill 1718 has at least one more committee stop before going to the floor for a vote. Still to come, President Biden visits Canada and tries to solve Haiti's violent gang takeover. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. If you live in Haiti these days, whether you're rich or poor, Chances are a typical night in your neighborhood includes gang gunfire like this. That was from a video a Port-au-Prince resident sent this week to a her relative here in Miami. Powerful gangs have all but taken control of Haiti. Their reign of terror includes hijackings of food, fuel, and other vital goods, brutal kidnappings, and murder. In a span of just 11 days this month, 187 Haitians were killed in gang violence. That's a big reason President Biden is in Canada today with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. They're discussing what can be done at this point to restore security in Haiti, including international police or military intervention. But there are no easy answers. Do you know someone trapped in the Haiti's violence? How do you think the US needs to respond to Haiti's violent collapse? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN.org. No one has done better reporting on Haiti's crisis than my colleague Jacqueline Charles from our news partner, The Miami Herald. She joins me now here in the studio. How are you, how are you Jackie?
4: I'm good, I'm hanging in there.
0: Yeah. Before we discuss President Biden's meeting in Canada, I want to talk about how worse the gang violence situation, the gang government situation, really, has gotten in Haiti. Until now, it was seen as a problem mostly confined to the capital, Port-au-Prince, but now we're learning that gangs are being spawned out in the interior zones, like Artibonite, a relatively new group there called Bazgrang Grief, which is Creole for big Claw crew, uh, more or less now, uh, is responsible for a lot of the most recent spate of violence, right?
4: Indeed. I mean, we we're watching what's happening in the Artopenit Valley, um, and it's really sad because one, police officers. Have been killed, they've been attacked, they are abandoning posts. We have a hospital there, L'Hôpital Albert Schweitzer. Um, They basically had to suspend regular operations, they had to keep all of their patients inside because there are no roads to send them anywhere, there are no hospitals to send them anywhere. And if they were to completely shut down, then the gangs will come and take over. This is the reality that people are having to deal with today. And this is a rural area, this was the food basket um, of the country where people grow rice and, and other vegetables. And d- the idea today that a gang has completely taken over and holding people hostage. You can't go north. You can't go south. You're basically trapped.
0: Yeah. no, Nowhere is immune at this nowhere. point in the country. In fact, the situation is so bad that interim prime minister Ariel Henry is now calling on Haiti's fledgling military to help the country's outmanned and outgunned police force. But that's likely insufficient to do the job. So you've got the UN and the Organization of American States now urging the US and the international community to get more seriously involved, maybe even some sort of military invention at least to provide enough security to let Haiti hold long overdue federal elections. Are Biden and Trudeau discussing that in Canada right now as you and I speak?
4: Well, they are discussing it, but it's unlikely that you're going to see Canada step up and say, "Okay, we're going to lead a military intervention into Haiti. This is the ask from the United States. States. Right. And
0: the United States really is saying we're not (laughs) going to take part. It's, (laughs) It's Canada's job.
4: Exactly. We're not going to send our American soldiers on Haitian soil. But Canada, can you step in and be our proxy? And Canada basically has been casting doubts that they're going to do this. We- In fact,
0: some some former Canadian military officers were saying this week we don't even have the military capacity to 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 invade Port-au-Prince. Well.
4: Exactly, or to go in and to step up. But but here's what's interesting. The Canadians have been the one that have been providing advisor, advice to the Haitian police now for years, even during the UN mission. And Michael Wildner and I just broke a story this morning, just a few hours ago, about how for the US, it's the conversation has now shifted to a UN peacekeeping mission. This is what okay. they wanted to avoid. Um, Haiti has had eight peacekeeping missions in 30 years. But after you know looking to Canada and hoping somebody in this region will step in and other countries are saying, no, the U.S., Haiti is your problem, we're not going to do it. Now they have no choice but to look to the U.S., to the U.N. peacekeepers.
0: Right. And U.N. peacekeeping has a very checkered history in in, in Haiti. I mean, a big part of the reason we've been seeing U.S., Canada, the international community balking at this kind of intervention is the feeling that past U.S. and international intervention simply left Haiti worse off and weakened its own sense of sovereignty and ability to solve its own problems. So, Haitian activists like the Montana Group are insisting that an interim government put together by a coalition of civil society groups be given the chance and the U.S. and international support to get Haiti back in order instead. Is that a realistic proposal?
4: I think what has happened today is that the longer that this situation has gone on, that you are now seeing multiple crises in Haiti that need to be dealt with. There's the political turmoil and the political issue that the Montana group is is trying to address and wants to address and saying, hey, we need a hard stop, we, we need to, figure out what the direction of this country is because elections have not solved the problems they've always made things worse but then there's this other problem today that has been separated from the political and it's called a security the insecurity because what you've seen in the last couple of months since the U.S. and Canada started imposing sanctions is that the gangs are now increasingly becoming free agents freelancing they're no longer taking orders if they were in the first place they're Mm -hmm. no longer doing it taking orders from powerful politicians and people in the elite right they are now you know and, going and we to, and
0: we should mention that the u.s and canada have been sanctioning those, exactly those elites for sponsoring these gangs exactly
4: so yeah. that has made people afraid they've backed off and if people were paying gangs to not you know attack my business they're not doing that anymore but the gangs have now kidnapping In last month 259 reported kidnappings in february by the gangs, so is a political agreement going to get the gangs to stop doing the kidnapping? The violence, 20 police officers that have been killed in gang-related attacks since January, is a political agreement going to do that? The police right. have basically ceded Port-au-Prince to the gangs.
0: So so gang leaders, like the famous gang leaders, like Jimmy Charizier and Vitellomi Nassant, they're essentially then not taking orders anymore from their higher-ups in the economic and, and, and political elite in Haiti, and they're, I mean, that's scary to think that now they're just doing whatever the heck they want.
4: When you hear these guys, they will basically tell you that they know that they have been pawns in this sort of political game. And so what they have started to do is like, hey, they have payrolls, they have to meet their payrolls. And what you're seeing that it's happening the last couple of weeks is a fight for territory. So now it's no longer just the poor people at the bottom of Port-au-Prince who are running and fleeing, but even the rich people in the mountains are forced to flee. Their homes are being attacked. You played, you know, the the sound in the beginning, but every day I'm getting videos of people in La Boule and Thomasin Mm -hmm. um, that basically are being invaded. They're sitting like like ducks because the gang are now coming into people's homes and, well, and pulling them out.
0: I can tell you, in fact, that, that audio we played at the beginning was from Thomasin. Um, I am Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the crisis in Haiti. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN.org. So, Jackie, if if the civil society interim government solution isn't possible— and the U.S. and international security intervention solution isn't possible, or or they're balking at it. What in the world is the solution at this point?
4: So I wouldn't say that the civil society um, proposal isn't you know isn't possible. Okay, it's, I think it, to, it's, it
0: still has some oxygen. You yeah, think. yeah, look, okay.
4: today Haitians hold a lot of the country's fate in their hands. The, mm-hmm. the, they have to move away from this winner-take-all mentality, and that's everybody. Okay, and I think that that's been the the problem, that Haitians haven't been able to come around the table and put aside their differences and have a discussion. Because the reality is, is that you have a larger society, they are neither into this current government or the people who are trying to get into government. They feel that they have been left out and overlooked. And then you have the security issue. What are you going to do? This is a country with 12 million people, barely 9,000 police officers. And thanks to the Biden humanitarian program, it's even less. You have an issue with corruption. You have issue of, of no equipment, no, no, no guns, no bulletproof vests. And it's, it's no longer about for the love of country, I'm going to go out and risk my life. So how do you address that reality? And I think That's what's been missing is that in the conversations where people have been opposed to an outside force, they haven't said what the solution or the alternative should be. Yeah,
0: you wrote another good article this week about how, even as Haiti sinks into a failed state condition, countries like the Dominican Republic next door keep deporting Haitians back into the country. Biden and Trudeau today are also discussing what to do about Haitian migrants, right? Exactly,
4: because as we know, Roxham Road in upstate New York, this is where Haitians have been crossing in order to get into Canada. Just a few years ago, Donald yeah. Trump wanted to get rid of TPS, a lot of Haitians. And Canada has also benefited from this crisis because a lot of Haitian professionals, that's what they've done, and a lot of them are police officers. They've crossed over into to Roxham Road because they figure that Canada is much more hospitable to them and to their immigration cause than in the United States.
0: Yeah, when I was just in uh, Montreal a few years ago. Great robust Haitian community up there. Jacqueline Charles covers Haiti for the Miami Herald. Jackie, thanks as always. Thank you. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway with help from Helen Acevedo and Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news and the vice president of radio. And the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives, answer the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Thanks for listening. Gracias. Merci. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.